Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 455 with Lisa Wentz. We talked about articulation and more, so I'm trying to do a little bit less mumbling as I do this introduction. Maybe you'll notice the difference, and hopefully I didn't overdo it by sounding pompous. Anyway, Lisa is sharing the key elements that really matter to make you a great speaker and to be confident in the midst of pressure-filled situations. So you'll learn, one, the ideal mindset for communicating with anyone and in any setting. Two, the best way to breathe for vocal power and confidence. And three, how to articulate well and why that matters. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced here, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F455. Now here's Lisa's story. Lisa Wentz is the founder of the San Francisco Voice Center, a public speaking expert, accent specialist, and the author of Grace Under Pressure, a masterclass in public speaking. Lisa has been featured as a public speaking expert in time, the Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. She regularly coaches speeches, presentation skills, and accent reduction with TED Talkers and executives and managers from Fortune 500 companies such as Adobe, Genentech, Google, Oracle, Salesforce, VMware, and more. So thanks to Lisa for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Lisa. Thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your expertise. You've done a lot of work uh, coaching folks with speaking and in many different contexts. So I I'd love it if you could open us up by sharing a fun story about working with either a famous pupil or on a famous talk. You know, if that is a great question. It's a tricky one, though, and I'm going to tell you why, because many of my clients are anonymous. So I can't say the person's name, really. The other thing about the word fun, a lot of the work I do is very in-depth. Certainly, it can be fun, but it makes me feel like you want me to tell you something entertaining. So here's what I'm going to tell you. And this is the story I'd like to tell you anyway, because I thought it was fun. There's a particular CEO that came to see me. He's very successful. He's had his company for 10 years. He's a great public speaker, and he came to me with an interesting problem. And his problem was that in meetings, he would become extremely nervous and thrown off if any of his team members seemed disappointed 
even in the mildest of ways. So if he ever had to deliver anything that was bad news or even mildly bad news, it was really challenging for him to the point where he would start shaking, sweating, his voice would contract, he wouldn't be able to speak very well. And this was all due to an internal pressure he was putting on himself to please others and too much pressure to take care of, not just take care of the company, which is his job to lead the, you know, the company, but to take care of the people in it. And so after the first session, we did a couple sessions on the physiological responses he was having. So the, the voice and speech problems, the not breathing enough, counteracting the adrenaline rush he was having when he was feeling nervous and that kind of thing. And then also worked on his mindset a little bit, you know, where was all this internal pressure coming from and so forth. By the think third or fourth session, I felt it was time for him to just face the challenge. So what I ended up doing was I hired five or six very good San Francisco actors that I knew, put them into a conference room, told him that he was going to deliver them bad news, (laughs) and he was going to have to deal with their responses. You don't get the part, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And they were phenomenal. He delivered a little bit of bad news about possible layoffs. And one actress was nearly in tears. How could you do this to me? Just completely guilt tripping him. Another one was really sort of angry and asking for accountability and this kind of thing. But basically, these five actors just railed on him for about 45 minutes. (laughs) And he handled it gracefully. He kept his composure. He didn't take it on as if it was his fault. He made leaps and bounds and afterwards thanked me. And uh, the actors had a great time doing it. I gave them backstories and names and everything. And he was really pleased that after just four sessions, he thought this was going to be something that was going to take 10 to 20 sessions because he'd been dealing with it for so long. After four sessions, he had it. He was ready to move on like a different person. But that's, that that's was cool. a fun, that was a fun experience for me because that's unusual. I don't usually hire actors to come in and give a CEO a hard time. Uh, certainly. Well, boy, I mean, that just sounds like what a service to have. I mean, that, that's kind of cool <laughs> to be able to simulate all kinds of things when you have access to a network of actors there. That's, that's pretty cool. So, well, well, boy, uh, I want to talk about a lot of things. You got this, this book, Grace Under Pressure, but now you got my interest, Pete, because I too, uh, I don't know if I, it's as dramatic, but I, I sure do have a resistance to disappointing people or, or giving people a, an unpleasant experience, whether I have to fire somebody or yeah, I, I'm just sharing something that they're not going to like. So any pro tips there? It sounds like there's some physiological things with breathing, but you're able to crack this in four sessions. What are some of the key takeaways for us? Well, I think first and foremost, to figure out, think about where it stems from, because usually that kind of thing, when we're giving ourselves a lot of internal pressure, it stems from something. It's a pressure to be perfect. Maybe we're giving early messaging that we had to please others that either comes from your caregivers, your parents, or you could have learned it in school or from friends, too much responsibility for other people's feelings and so forth. Now, of course, if you are a sensitive person, firing somebody isn't easy and we want to be human as well. And so I'm not advocating for being just cold and not feeling anything, of course. But there is something about, like I said, the mindset, thinking through what's really your responsibility and what's not your responsibility. So is it your responsibility to handle something very professionally? Yes, absolutely. Is it your responsibility to be a kind person? Yes. But it's also your responsibility to not take on other people's emotional responses. And so staying with your own purpose and the greater good 
and sort of what has to be done if it's a fire that has to happen. I think it's that. It's kind of going through the logic of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's pretty helpful right there in terms of you can clearly see some things are in and out of, of your zone of responsibility. Cool. Well, what else? What else should we do if we are struggling with the I don't like uh, disappointing people delivering bad news stuff? Yeah. So first of all, I always start with logic. So what's the logic of the situation? Like I said, what's really your responsibility? I also think that if it's really something, if anything's really nagging at you that's pervasive, figure out where it stems from and unravel that part of it. Because I'll give you an example. Let's see. Let's say, I'll make this up hypothetically speaking. Let's say you had a caregiver, let's say it's a parent, who constantly needed you to be overperforming. And there's a lot of that. I get quite a few clients who will say to me, you know, if I got an A, it should have been an A plus. Why didn't you do even better? And as if the parent is personally hurt or dissatisfied with them as children and that kind of a thing, any early childhood messaging we get, we can really hold on to it. And if it's a situation where there's not direct abuse or something really, really overtly painful, then we might even hold on to it longer because we don't see how much it affected us. We just take it as, oh, this is just how I am. And so to go deeper with this, once you get through the logic of it, I think dealing with the emotional side of it, eventually, and this is talked about a lot in the self-help world, sometimes you have to be your own parent. And the side of you that was a child and got too much pressure as a child to please others or to take care of others, then needs to be acknowledged and some healing around that needs to happen. So the more adult side of you can do that. Say, okay, that wasn't fair. My parent may not have been a bad parent, but that's too much pressure for a five-year-old to take or a 10-year-old to take. And I don't need to do this to myself anymore. And those Mm -hmm. kinds of real decisions can really affect you. They can unravel a lot, take a lot of the pressure off. Lovely. Well, thank you for that. So, well, yeah, and that's just the opener. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about your book, Grace Under Pressure. What's what's the big idea here? You know, I wrote the book for a couple of reasons, but I think the big idea really, what I want the readers to get is that one, you do not have to be some special person to be a great speaker. It's not as though only a few people can do this kind of thing. Maybe only a certain percentage of the population have decided to really become great speakers because they needed to for their careers and this kind of thing. But anyone who really wants to be a great speaker can be a great speaker. That's the first thing. Talent. And we all have talent. Talent really boils down to who you are. It's you in your most authentic form. And the rest is training. The rest is technique. Okay. Excellent. Well, that's... uh... That reminds me a little bit of Aristotle there, uh, some of these these components. So, well, let's talk about you know some of these these things in in particular with regard to technique and, and things that that show up and and impact things. Now, you are also an expert on on posture, which is pretty cool. So, let's talk about posture here in terms of its impact on presenting and and how should we think about it and and adjust it and 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 what difference does does posture make when we're presenting. Yeah, there's there's a few areas we can talk about. One is your internal experience, and of course, then the experience of the audience. If you have a really what we call collapsed posture, you know, sort of looking like a marionette with loose strings, you know, like you look weighted down, like gravity's pulling you down too much. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm, yeah. So oftentimes the head goes back a little bit, hips forward, you know, slouching is another way of saying it. Now for speaking, that's not ideal because your rib cage 
and your throat are not going to be in a balanced position, neither will your head. And since we want, when we're speaking, especially for long periods of time, we want to be speaking in a neutral posture, a lighter posture, not one that's weighted down because we want our breath support to be there. We want to be able to breathe freely. We don't want our chest collapsing because then we're going to take in less air. If our head is back, we're going to strain our uh, voice box and overuse it too much tension then creates a strain on the voice so a lot of people who speak for their profession even receptionists will often have or lecturers will have you know strained vocal folds and by the time they start getting real damage then it gets to be too late pretty quick so there's that part there's the physical just the physical health part then what's interesting too is the audience's perception of you if you're standing on stage or even if you're in a meeting and you're in a really collapsed state what kind of a message does that give? Now, most people will not look at a speaker unless there's somebody like me who's a, who's a coach and say, wow, that person has really collapsed posture. You know, that's not going to happen. But what will happen is that there'll be subliminal messages. They will read the person who's speaking as too casual, too relaxed, mm-hmm. not to be taken as seriously, sort of not low, low status, but not high status. And anything that distracts, physically distracts an audience is, you got to get, get it out the window. Anything that distracts from your message should be gone. And being in neutral, you're not distracting anybody. The other thing I notice that happens to audiences, especially if it's, let's say it's a whole day of a conference or, you know, very long speech or something like that. If the speaker has a really collapsed posture and that has that sort of weighted down quality, the audience will start getting tired. Yeah. It's like you seem to convey a little bit of sleepiness. <laughs> and so they're, they're picking up on that as well. Yeah. Well, so then let's review then sort of, sort of head to toe. What does a, a non-collapsed, neutral, optimal presenting posture look like? Right. It's a hard thing to just talk about, isn't it? Without the visual. So neutral means that it's the skeleton basically is in a balanced position. The head is balanced on the neck. The shoulders are relaxed. They're not pulled back. They're not rolling forward. They're in sort of a healthy neutral. Mm -hmm. The hips are just under that in line with the shoulders. They're not pushed forward. They're not pushed back and so forth. Knees are not locked. I can certainly give you, there's many examples of great posture out there because there's great speakers out there. I have no idea why, but Laurence Olivier is popping into my head first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Or you watch some of the older films where it was expected that people would have really great posture and present themselves really well. Yeah. Does that, is that helpful at all? Oh, yeah, sure thing. And so then, and let's talk about the, the neck angle. Uh, is it just sort of like straight ahead? Like my eyeballs are kind of forming a 90 degree angle with, if we were to draw a straight line down from them to the ground or, or how do we think about that? Yeah. Think about it. Like, let's start with the top of the head. If you were to think that the top of your head has a paintbrush on it and the bristles are towards the ceiling <laughs> okay. and you could paint the ceiling with it, just little bits, that would be a balanced position. If that paintbrush is pointing back or if the paintbrush is pointing too far forward and it's not pointing directly to the ceiling, then you're out of balance. I think for most people, the habit is to pull their head back and their chin up forward. So if you, for I think most people can simply just drop the chin just a little bit and remember that your eyes have a huge amount of range. You do not need to pull your head back to look up, for instance. You do not need to pull your head down to look down. For the most part, your eyes are in horizon line level, typically if we're speaking or if we're just 
socializing or whatever. Your eyes have a lot of range. You don't need to pull your head around to get them to see what you want to see typically. You know, it's amazing. As we're having this conversation, I'm realizing that, oh, I can bring my desk up a little bit because where my microphone is relative to my posture. (laughs) Yeah. Ergonomics. Yeah. So that's a handy feature of the sit to stand desk because I could just pop it up an inch or two. So, okay, lovely. So, so that's got the, the posture side of things. And, and so you've got a bunch of suggestion when it comes to, to speaking and presenting. Well, I'd love to hear which ones do you see most often tend to be the most transformative in terms of your, your practices that you're suggesting? The most transformative? Let's see. I think, like I said a minute ago, people are unique, but if I have to choose one, I'd, th- I'd say a developing a healthy mindset. All right. Because if we go into situations and let's just talk for a second here about what is the sort of dictionary definition of stage fright, usually it's a combination of an expectation to be perfect and a fear of being judged. But when we okay. really look at it logically, that expectation of being perfect comes from your own internal pressure. We aren't trained to be speakers. Most of us are not trained to be speakers, right? We don't learn it in school. We don't practice it in the home in the same way that, and then suddenly we might find ourselves in a career where, oh, we've got to speak at a conference or, oh, we've got to lead a meeting and we don't have any practice with that or any training. So you have an unrealistic expectation. So looking at that and letting go of the pressure is a great way to start sort of a transformational movement to being a better speaker. And the other part is fear of judgment. Most of the time when we're watching a speaker, we're at a meeting or we're at a conference, we're not thinking about how well they're speaking or even about them personally. Usually we're just thinking about the content. And so if you can take your mind off of, oh, what are other people thinking of me? How am I doing? Are they liking me? Are they, you know, buying into what I'm saying? And just put your mind, your focus on the work or focus on your message then you can make huge leaps and bounds. You can be more present in the moment with your audiences, more effective. So Mm -hmm. going back to answer your question, I think that one of the key things that I focus on because it's so essential is the way you think about how how you're going to present the material and what matters to you most. And ultimately, whether an audience likes you or not doesn't really matter. What matters is the work that you're presenting or the idea that you're spreading. All right. Thank you. And so then that's handy in terms of just making everything flow in terms of not freaking out and and kind of readily getting more so into the groove of things. And so I also want to get your take on on a couple of particulars. How about uh, breathing? How should we do that ideally? Ideally, we think of breathing into the lower torso. So into the belly and the back and sides of your rib cage. Most of us will think, oh, I'm going to take a deep breath. And then we pull our chest up where really the shoulder girdle and the clavicle area have nothing to do with how much air you're taking in. When you relax your belly and you breathe in and your belly muscles move out forward and your rib cage kind of swings out a little bit, that's when your lungs are really getting filled with air. And if you're speaking, particularly for, like I said, a long amount of time and you want the support and the power in your voice, you want to be thinking that way. I want my belly to move. I want my rib cage to move, lower rib cage. That's where all your power comes from. We had Roger Love on the show earlier, and he talked about a speaking phenomenon in which you start off with a whole lot of air, but then as you go on, it kind of gets a little bit weaker, and he calls it the squeaky hinge. And, <laughs> and so how should we think about avoiding that kind of situation? A really good warm-up. Okay. A good breathing warm-up so that your body is set and ready to go. Yeah. 
yeah, the kind of thing he's talking about, I think, is going to happen if you're really holding a lot of tension because you're getting in your own way. I mean, ultimately, we, we're meant to breathe. The lungs know how to work. Our body knows, thankfully, <laughs> we know how to do this, right? It's that we interfere with it is the problem. So if we get nervous, we tense up and we forget to breathe or those kinds of things. But if you just access what's naturally there and build on it a little bit, then you should be in the green light. You should be fine. What's a good breathing warm-up look like? What does it look like? Starting in a neutral posture is always a good idea. Exhaling first just to empty the lungs so that your lungs want to take in more air. Breathe in very slowly into the belly. I mean, even though the lungs are not housed in the belly, that's just an image. You breathe into the belly, touch the sides of your ribs, see if they're moving. And when you have a very full breath, let it out slowly on an S like And when you empty the lungs, pause before you breathe in again. And you repeat that about four or five times. That'll open up the voice for you. Because again, in order to be resonant, you have to have your breath support and get rid of excess tension. Plus, you're getting more oxygen to the brain and hopefully combating any kind of nervousness. And so when you're breathing in, you're breathing in through the nose? If you want more of that rib movement, you want to breathe in through the nose. By the end of the exercise, if you do four or five breaths, let's say, you can start to breathe in through the nose and mouth at the same time, which is how we breathe when we talk. Oh, wow. Anyway. So you want to mimic speech. If I do a breath warm-up with someone or a vocal warm-up with with a client, then I will take them through sort of an aggressive actor's warm-up to a five-minute warm-up. By the end of it, we are breathing in the way that we breathe when we speak. It's just that we're accessing the belly muscles and the ribcage more so that we have more breath capacity. And then instead of the S, we're actually letting out speech because you want to build up to get closer and closer to what you would normally do. Okay. So after five-ish of the, the in through the nose S's, then you're kind of breathing more kind of mouth and nose at the same time and then and then exiting or, or speaking <laughs> real words as the air is flowing out of your mouth that way. So so that's a nice little lineup there. And, and any thoughts for how long, you know, we're inhaling and and pausing and exhaling? You'd only want to pause for a few seconds. As far as how much you're exhaling, you just want to exhale until you're basically out of air. You don't want to be pushing at the end of it or tightening. You know what I mean? Let it out and then pause for a second and then let it come back in. Okay. And and so then, and likewise, is the inhalation just about as long as it takes to fill up? No need to count anything? No, you don't need to count it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, so that's the breathing side of things. You mentioned resonance and how breathing is essential to to get there. You know, what is resonance and what does it do for us as speakers and how do we get more of it? So when we talk about voice and speech and we talk about resonance, what we're really referring to are the sound waves that are leaving the vocal folds. So the sound of our voice. We're not talking really about pitch or things like that. One of the nice things that happens when we build up our breath capacity with an exercise like that, we can then start to warm up the voice. So instead of an S, you might start using a Z. So just a clean Z sound. And that warm ups, warms up the vocal folds. It can also really clear the throat. You don't really want to cough or create any tension to clear the throat. You're better off doing a resonance exercise. Could you give us a sample? Like what would a resonant thing sound like versus a non-resonant thing? Sure. Okay. So right now, I'm going to assume that I have a relatively resonant voice because I don't feel particularly uh, tense. And I feel like I have a pretty good access to my breath. So lack of resonance would be, let's say, if I started to talk like this, you know, maybe I had a virus. Or if I went to my roots and I went to my valley girl accent, 
<laughs> then I would start to talk like this and the resonance would be like in the back of my throat. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be sort of a lack of resonance sound. It gotcha. So it's, it's kind of like that uh, maybe vibrational, like you know, going on and present there. Yeah. Resonance really is the sound of, it's the sound waves that are leaving your oral cavity. Certainly. Okay. So, so the Z is a means of, of warming up to get there. Any other thoughts to, to make sure you're more often in the resonant zone? If you like to play around with it, you could start with a Z, bring the sound more forward in the mouth, and then start to play with vowels, like ah or another vowel, and just keep checking in that you have good breath support and that you can feel the vibrations. No need to push for this. Again, the voice is a really strong instrument. And so when I say feel the vibrations, you're putting your hand on your chest, which can also be very calming, you know, right under the clavicle. And you can feel the vibration really working or putting a hand on your nose or any area of your mouth can kind of encourage the sound to increase. Okay, cool. And so also want to get your view on when it comes to to pausing and, and stressing words differently. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you could speak a sentence. You know, what are some of the impacts or, or how do you think about using pauses and, and different word stresses to really make your sentences sing? Yeah, you have to pause. You have to use pauses when you're delivering a speech, even if it's a short speech. And I think that many people will have the internal experience when they first start trying that as it being a really long time, it feels like it's forever when really it's not. So I try to encourage clients to pause even longer than they think they should. And I try to encourage them to pause logically where they want the greatest effect. So let's say right before and or right after a key message that they're delivering something they really want the audience to walk away with. Other places that you can pause are when you're changing topic. So you might say something that's really important. You know, you could be delivering, uh, let's just say a pitch to an investor and you've already talked about your background and then you're going to go into say the money of it all and what you're asking for, but you just continually speak. Well, you have given them no time to digest the information on the previous part before Mm -hmm. you move on, right? And you need that people, no matter how smart an audience is, we need time to digest the information. So those key places, also questions. And this is something I see a lot of people miss. They like to ask a question to the audience when they know the audience isn't really going to answer the question, but it's a way of starting off a topic. Mm -hmm. But then they just start talking or they tell the answer. Think about giving a pause there. Even if you don't expect the audience to answer, you're telling them, I want you to think about it, or I respect you enough that I'm giving you time to think about it. I'm not just going to give you the answer. Does it make sense? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what I find is like when people are effective pausers, sometimes it's sort of like my mind was drifting off somewhere else. And then because there's a pause, I go, oh, 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 I'm, oh I'm supposed to. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, it it kind of like brings me back, even though they're not saying anything. It's just sort of like the, I guess, the contrast of of speaking and then not speaking. It's like, oh, it's sort of it like actually reclaims my attention. And, and so you say you, people should pause maybe longer than they feel comfortable with. If they feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah. So, so some folks may think a pause is going on forever, but it's really not. So what kind of range of time are we talking about here with a good pause? Well, first, let me say the way to measure it is to record yourself. So if you're nervous about that kind of a thing, run through your speech, record just an audio recording, play it back and listen to it, 
And then you can tell, you can say, oh my gosh, that felt like I was pausing for five minutes and it was actually only three seconds, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. So there are ways to measure this that can increase your confidence. But how long, if I had to count the seconds, right? five seconds could be an effective pause. And you're bringing me back to, boy, any number of times I've done some keynote speaking and it's it does feel a little bit terrifying the first few times you do it but then afterwards it you just feel just i don't know for, for me at least it's like i just feel powerful it's yeah, like yeah it's i don't have to feel every second i'm cool with this are you can you handle this because i can <laughs> yeah. what <laughs> yeah, i don't know not so aggressively but you know is it kind of like that feeling no i love it it should be a feeling of empowerment yeah okay so that's the pausing element of things and, and how about the word stress So word stress for me, again, I usually just start very logically and simply, you know, in English, we stress content words. So we're going to stress nouns. What is the thing? We're going to stress verbs. What's the action we're taking and adjectives? What does this look like? And everything else is pretty much secondary. I think that that can make a huge difference when somebody can just look at their speech. And even for those listeners out there who don't necessarily want to write out their speeches, Uh, because they don't want to be boxed into a particular delivery. That's okay. But you could try as an exercise writing out one of your speeches and then decide to deliver it differently later or writing out an elevator pitch or something like that and underline the words you really want to stress. And those should be content words. And the way in which you stress them can depend on the type of delivery you're giving. It could be that you slow down that word. It could be that you give it more weight. It could be that you over-articulate it. There's many different ways to stress a word. You can even use the pauses for that. A pause right before and after a word. Yeah. But basically, you're looking at the content words. What do you really want them to hear? And, and I, I'm thinking, let me start talking about that that notion of the the stresses and pauses. I just, I'm just sort of thinking like the musical quality of, of of some speakers. And I guess I'm thinking about Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, and Jim Rohn right now. And boy, when I hear some of their best recordings of, of some of these folks, it's a thing of beauty, you know, in terms of like, oh my gosh, it's just like this musical phrasing at times that uh, I, I just want to curl up it and listen for long stretches. So I, I know we're, we're talking about some world-class masters of the craft here, but how do we be more like that? <laughs> Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because when we think about people who inspire us or we think about a great speaker, that's pretty subjective. There certainly are people that most people would agree great speakers because they had a lot of conviction. They had good physical and vocal use and all of that. Like you you said, it's almost as if they're singing or something like that. But how do we get there? I think that really inspirational effect on others has to do with being very committed to what you're saying, removing your ego, trying to remove your ego anyway from the occasion, so that again, solely your focus is on the idea or the work or what it is that you're presenting or what you want buy-in. And it's interesting that you mentioned Tony Robbins because I have nothing against Tony Robbins and he's had a beautiful, wonderful career and helped a lot of people. However, listening to him is hard for me. He clearly has vocal damage because of all the speaking he has done. Oh, oh yeah. I, I'm thinking of some of his recordings a couple decades ago. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's, okay. it, it so, has, you can hear it now. Yeah. So I wouldn't put him on the top of my list for like a really beautiful resonant voice. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you get that way? So the answer is backing up what you're saying with conviction 
and then making sure your instrument, your vocal use, is in good shape. That's good. And we All haven't right. talked about articulation yet, and that's a that's, that's, that's a big part of it. If we can talk about that, please do. Yeah. So when we are physically very articulate, uh, you know, when we're really shaping sound well. Uh, that's an interesting thing as well in terms of subliminal messaging. So we talked about posture and how people can be affected by posture if they're watching a speaker on stage. You can also be affected by how they articulate their language. And that's not necessarily an accent thing. There, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of accents in English, right? But rather that they are really firmly articulating their consonants and that their vowels are very, what I would call, fleshed out. You can see it in some great actors because they go through all the training for that. You can see it in some of the politicians that you would probably consider great speakers and maybe a few others. But basically, really great physical articulation is one of my favorite things to teach because you get a lot of bang for your buck. You get your message across very clearly. People will hear you. They don't have to strain to hear you. And on a subliminal level, I really truly believe that audiences see physically articulate people as smarter. Oh, yeah. I buy it. They see it as leadership. Well, so can you give us an example of maybe a sentence with some great articulation versus poor articulation? Oh, you mean from specific people? Well, well just in terms of, I, I'm imagining you could say the same words, you know, with great articulation versus poor articulation. Uh, can we hear how that sounds? Sure. Uh, let's see. So the book I wrote was called Grace Under Pressure. Now that's in my accent, Grace Under Pressure. That's articulate. If I wanted to say Grace Under Pressure, then I barely moved my lips I right. sort of sped through it, and I was sort of sloshy sounding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or for those of you at home listening, you know, you could do a little articulation warm-up, record yourself, then drink a couple of glasses of wine, and then say the same thing again and see how you sound. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's perfect. So we have a nice contrast there. And you're reminding me of my buddy Avon, who whatever he used to read at church we used to, you know, razz him a little bit about his his speaking style, but in a way, it was excellent because as as he would describe it to us, he was Indian. Well, he's he's still alive, and he still is Indian. But he's like, I pronounce every letter of every word, <laughs> and, and he did, and and it was very clear. It was easy to understand what he had to say, and he did come across as very smart. He is very smart. So then. Can you overdo it, though, I guess, when it comes to articulation? If you overdo it, you're probably going to come across as slightly condescending. So I guess the answer is slightly (laughs) yes. Do you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the show Friends. All right. I don't usually quote sitcoms, but there's a character on that show, which is a very popular show. I forget his name now. The one that was always playing Jennifer Aniston's boyfriend. Oh, but let's see. There's Joey. What a slight to not remember him. And then there's... Ross? Ross, Ross. Sorry. Ross, okay. And so the other characters on the show would would give him a hard time for being too articulate. But really, it was that he was being condescending. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I suppose there could be overdoing it, but in general, no. Most people will not overdo articulation. Well, and I think that's just a great way to to frame it in terms of you, because I find that a lot of times you try to find a sweet spot. It it helps to, to overdo it in one direction for a moment and say, okay, we'll just back it up a little bit from there. And so that's a great way to say it. So on the continuum from drunken slurring your words (laughs) together to pompous articulation, that certainly seems like you think you're far too good for another, I guess a British accent will come into play maybe as well. You sort of get the idea is like we want to sound not like the, the drunk speech slurring and and not like the you think you're better than me, uh, but just a couple notches away from the 
they're, you know, pompous. Yeah, that's funny. I think that that's a great way of putting it. I think that the uh, the second there, the uh, being over articulate, it's tone as well. You know, yeah. if you're being warm, you can over articulate mm-hmm. anything because of the tone. They're going to pick up on the tone anyway. Whoever's listening to you. That's good. Well, tell me, Lisa, when, when folks are trying to to learn and and improve and grow in these dimensions, you know, what's sort of the the biggest mistake you see folks make over and over again as they're trying to grow? I think I touched upon this already, but one of the things is being liked, being focused on how did I do? Am I a great speaker? Uh, those kinds of things, instead of focusing on the content, delivering the content in a way that's really about the audience, making it bigger than yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's one thing. That's a trap. I mean, we're all human. We have our egos, but setting aside your insecurities and your egos and being able to just focus on why are you there? Who are you speaking to? And why does it matter? I think that's a mind shift that, that I see happening a lot in my office. So I would say this might be a mistake that people make when trying to improve their speaking when they first start, sort of mm-hmm. like they're trying to improve it for the wrong reasons. Thank you. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Make sure to mention, no, I think I'm good. All right, then. Well, could you start by sharing a favorite quote with us, something that you find inspiring? Yeah, absolutely. One of the quotes I put in the book is from Martha Graham. It's kind of a longer quote, but I'll read it here. It's in front of me. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? That someone else has done? Oh, sure. Yeah. Deborah Tannum is a great person to look at. She's a linguist, teaches at Georgetown. She's She's been around for quite a while, written several books. But I noticed that I refer to a study she did relatively often. And it was in the corporate world. She sort of went into the corporate world to study how people communicate. And she boiled down sort of two personalities two common personalities within the corporate world and named them cats and dogs (laughs) and decided that there has to be a way for cats and dogs to to communicate together and learn each other's needs to make the working environment and the communication environment more effective and you can see it when you really think about it you can see it in many people Uh, the dog type personality is a personality that says a lot. They use a lot of words. They tend Mm -hmm. to over-explain, maybe even ramble on uh, a little bit. They tend to even physically move more. I think that's where she got the dog from. They sort of physically move more. They are people who tend to be more interested in being liked than respected. And they can be incredibly warm and uh, very valuable. But their counterpart, the cat, is someone who... And by the way, cats are always executives and higher. Mm -hmm. They're the VPs and the C-levels. They need less words. And they become very impatient when somebody is over-explaining. And they move less they are more still and the quick thinkers sort of that high what we think of as higher status and i tend to refer to that every once in a while when i'm trying to explain to somebody you know if you're faced with this personality it's not that they don't like you or you can't work well together it's just that you have to meet in the middle on what each other needs does it make sense gotcha yes thank you and how about a favorite book you know what anything written by david sedaris (laughs) (laughs) i saw him live once it was fun and a favorite tool, stuff that helps you be awesome at your job. Favorite tool? I'll say a bone prop. Yes, a bone prop. A bone prop is an articulation device that you put between your teeth 
and you practice articulation that way, it helps you move your lips and your tongue tip more. It's quick. It's effective. <laughs> I'm going to buy one immediately. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? Favorite habit is breathing. Remembering to breathe even in high stress situations. And and when you are remembering to breathe in high stress situations, is it kind of the same rules apply? No need, no need to count. Just just do it. Yep. Just relax the belly. Make sure your ribs are moving. Take things slow and slow down, not just your breathing, but your thoughts as well. Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your your clients and your readers and you hear him quoting it back to you again and again? Perhaps the piece that I tend to say, which is that not to compare yourself with others as a speaker, that you are meant to sound like you, not like someone else. And it's authenticity that audiences crave anyway. So it's really about taking what you have and developing it further, not trying to mimic someone else or become like that other person you admire. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? My website, lisawentz.com, I think is probably the best. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I do, but it's, it's twofold. So one is if you are a person who is maybe very extroverted or just tends to speak up a lot at meetings, try taking a step back as a challenge try listening more just to see how that works and how it affects you and listen to understand not to interrupt which is a different type of listening and for people who are not who might be more introverted or say less at meetings or hold themselves back to start challenging themselves to speak up all right well lisa this has been a lot of fun i wish you lots of luck in all your your clients and books and speeches and adventures thank you thanks Well, I think the biggest takeaway for me from Lisa was the articulation. Sometimes I get a little bit lazy with that. It's like I'm very excited. I speak up and faster, and then things kind of fumble together a little bit, and it's sort of hard to understand what I'm saying. So I've made an effort at this intro and outro to articulate better, and I'd love your feedback. Email Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. Did I overdo it so I sound pompous? Could I use some more of it? Because it's still unclear when I say the show notes, the transcript, the links, the apps that we've referenced goes too fast and mumbled. Don't want that. So again, if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F455. If you have not already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It is Nick Loper. He is talking about side hustles, what they are, how to start one, why to start one, and how to be smart about them. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.